Good evening, everyone. Welcome to Spin Class. We're talking politics. I'm Michael Fragan on the Nachum Siegel Network, NachumSiegel.com, jmintheam.org. Welcome to another Thursday night of good talk, discussion, and a little bit of insight. So we are, as usual, uh, proud to be sponsored by Season Supermarkets, location 6818 Main Street in Kew Gardens Hills, Queens, 1066 Wilmot Road in Scarsdale, New York. That's up in Westchester. And on the Upper West Side, 661 Amsterdam Avenue are all open. And the Lawrence Superstore currently under renovation, but you can still order from Seasons. They deliver all day in the five towns. Call on your order to 516-295-3300. That's 516-295-3300. Or email it to lawrenceorders at seasonsny.com. And if you happen to find yourself in the Central Queens area, Kew Gardens Hills, Forest Hills, Hillcrest, all those places, stop in for Mechie's Chillant. Open until midnight. So welcome to the show. Rummy's here. Judith is here in the studio. Welcome, everyone. And if it's another week of spin class, it's another week of scandal in Albany. So we have indictments yet again. Yet another outrage for, against the public. And uh, I'm referring to the indictment of former Senate Conference Majority Leader, Democrat of Brooklyn, Senator John Sampson, who has been indicted not for corruption, mind you. He has been indicted for stealing from escrow accounts. He was appointed a court referee, and that's not a little bit different than the referee you might see on the basketball court and the like. He was refereeing in foreclosure proceedings. And he figured, okay, I'll make some payments out of the account that I control, and I'll keep some for myself. But the the real rub here, what really bothers me, and why am I mentioning it? Because I know that all of you are probably sick of the corruption. I'm sick of the corruption. I'm sick of talking about it. But his lawyer, as he was arraigned, as he was brought into the courthouse, I'm sorry, on the way out of the courthouse, his lawyer said, No, this is not corruption. This is not about Albany. He didn't steal the money in Albany. This is just, uh, well, he was implying, he did, he was implying basically that it's not corruption because he was basically just theft. He's just stealing. So, you know, my client, he might be a state senator, but he's stealing like everybody else would commonly. It's nothing particular to him being a state senator in this case. And I got to tell you, folks, I am so relieved that John Sampson was not accused of stealing as part of his official position as a senator. I, I find that very comforting. I find it comforting that his lawyer would make sure that we are all reassured that he did not steal as a senator. He only did it as a court-appointed referee. Of course, you would probably ask yourself, how did he get appointed as a court referee to begin with? Those are some pretty cushy jobs. For lawyers, maybe those took some political connections. Maybe the fact that the court didn't realize that the money was missing. Of course, you know, that had to do with his political connections. But it was just run-of-the-mill stealing. So we have a great show. I just had to get that off my chest. It's important every week if there's another indictment in Albany to talk about it. And we have a great show ahead. we got Dan, Ger- 
Dan Gerstein, former communications director for Senator Joe Lieberman of Connecticut, as well as CEO of Gotham Ghostwriters. We have former mayor Steve Langert of Lakewood, New Jersey, and currently a town committeeman. Going to talk about some interesting issues. You know, we like to cross the river every so often. And we have also some uh, surprise guests at the end talking a little bit about local politics out there on Long Island. So first I want to welcome Dan Gerstein to the show, to Spin Class, a longtime friend, and as I mentioned, uh, CEO of Gotham Ghostwriters, definitely a guy that you want to call for communications help and uh, uh, writing help, any any of the like. If you want to communicate with somebody else and you're not really sure how to do it, Dan Gerstein is your man. So, Dan, welcome to Spin Class. Thank you, Michael, for that generous introduction. It's uh, great to talk with you. So, Dan, let's just start a little bit with the ancient history. And what I mean by ancient history and politics is you know, let's talk about Senator Lieberman for a second. <laughs> Uh, you know, I know it's not your current forte, but you, you're never going to get past it. And, of course, Joe Lieberman, no matter whether you're a Democrat or Republican in the Jewish community, Joe Lieberman is a hero to, to those in the Jewish community. And you served alongside him or served in his office uh, for quite a few years. So give us a little bit of the inside and the insight into Senator Joe Lieberman. Sure, um, and I'm always happy to talk about my time with Senator Lieberman. He, he uh, personifies the term mensch. Um, he is exactly um, what he seems like. That's one of the first questions I get asked usually is, like, is he a nice guy, as he seems like, or honorable guy? He is. Uh, and that's one of the reasons why I worked for him for 10 years is that, um, you know, unlike a lot of people in politics, he's the same person in a private meeting that he is in public. Um, you know, one of my favorite things about him was when we went – you know, he was running for vice president. He was running for president. We traveled all around the country. He'd go to an event, and you know, the first thing he'd do, he'd walk through the kitchen on the way to you know a hotel speech, and he'd say hello to all the workers. Um, when he got in the elevator at the Capitol, he'd say hello to all the cops, um, and that says something about someone who's you know you know values the work that the people behind the scenes do, um, and doesn't treat them as as the help. Uh, but uh, I had a great experience working for him. He is um, a rare breed, increasingly rare breed in politics, where he doesn't care about party affiliation, he doesn't care about um, you know uh, conventional wisdom or uh, you know where the idea came from. He was always uh, hungry for new ideas, for innovative approaches, and trying to bring people together to get things done for the good of his state and the country. And that ethic, I'm afraid, is increasingly in short supply in Washington. And it's one of the reasons why. There's such dysfunction um, and, uh, you know, frustration with the, in the American people. Well, that's a lot to to digest. Sorry. I, I, no, no, there's, there's, a, there's so many questions that I want to ask uh, after that opening statement on your part. Uh, I, you know, I don't know where to start. But I, I, I actually want to relate a actually quick story. It kind of reminds me of a time I was uh, campaigning with uh, Governor Pataki in uh, 2004. We were in Florida. We went to a famous diner in North Miami Beach called the Rascal House, and uh, we had a little campaign stop there. You know, all, all the all the Jewish uh, refugees from up north uh, were, were there, and so instantly a New York governor is very recognizable. But on the way out, uh, Governor Pataki insisted on going into the kitchen and shaking the hands of all the voters. Uh, I'm sorry, all the workers in the back. And I was going to say, they probably weren't voters, if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, I, we came upon a guy who was actually washing dishes. And uh, let's just, he probably was not from America. He probably uh, possibly uh, didn't speak any English. But Governor Pataki stuck out his hand to him. And 
he the guy was washing dishes. His hands were, you know, probably not so clean, and he didn't really know what to do. So he just kind of looked blankly for a couple seconds, and Pataki still had his hand out, and he okay, he shook his hand, and uh, it didn't matter because he's going to shake everybody's hand, and that's the mark of a great real retail politician and somebody who really connects with with everybody out there. And I think that that's a trademark that a lot of uh, a, a lot of uh, some politicians have and, and some don't, but it's really important. And I, I have to say, in my experiences with Senator Lieberman, uh, he's always been exactly that, is uh, the, what you see is what you get, and there's really nothing else about. But talk for a second. I guess the first question is kind of towards the end, is the vital center, right? We're missing that center in American politics. And the, I guess the retirement of Joe Lieberman kind of uh, exemplifies the fact that we're, we're missing that person who looks for common ground out there. Uh, what do you what do you see as the future of an institution like the Senate as without those people in the middle, those senators who are willing to kind of be right in the middle there? Well, you know, I um, I just w- saw Joe Manchin, the senator from West Virginia, um, who uh, is you know kind of a Lieberman Democrat in that mold. And I, when I say that, I'm not necessarily saying ideological, but in his character and his makeup and how he approaches politics. And he's very bipartisan, and he's always kind of looking, sort of, how do, how do we bring people together? Uh, and he spoke, uh, and this was very dispiriting, he spoke about his experience with, um, you know, the the recent um, gun safety legislation, and the, primarily was about background checks. And there you had uh, an opportunity, something that 90% of the American people support, um, and you had bipartisan effort uh, with uh, Manchin from West Virginia, Toomey from um, Pennsylvania, you know, salt-of-the-earth country (laughs) for America, um, trying to find common ground and and move this forward. Uh, And um, it got blown up, and, and it's fallen apart. Um, because um, of the partisan divisions and the typical reflexive position-taking where, you know, um, conservatives have to, you know, placate the NRA, just like the Democrats have to placate the teachers' union, Um, and nothing got done. And I'm afraid that's the way it's going to continue to be until, frankly, the American people rise up and demand something better. It's interesting that, and I'd like to get a, a center perspective on it, but it's interesting how in some of these debates, particularly guns and immigration, and the like, it's always portrayed that the Republicans are monolithically on one side, the Democrats are monolithically on, on the other side, which actually is not the case. On the gun control debate, you had Democrats who did not go, who, who did not vote for um, the Manchin-Toomey bill. Right. There were a handful of Democrats and, from red states who put their political, uh, and, and I think in a misreading of the politics, um, you know, put their self-interest above the good of the country, and that was that was a shame. There was a great piece. I would encourage your listeners. Um, Bill Daly, who was White House Chief of Staff for President Obama for a little while, uh, ran Al Gore's campaign, Commerce Secretary under President Clinton, a real pros, pro in politics, not someone naive or super ideological, wrote a piece in the Washington Post after Heidi Heitkamp, the senator from North Dakota, who, you know, was a very good politician, just won election, you know, had all the time in the world to, to kind of vote the right way and then explain it to people, um, decided, you know, um, to vote against the, the Manchin-Toomey bill. And he, he said, you know, I'm never going to give her another dime, and I'm going to tell all my friends never going to give her another dime. And I think, you know, to be honest with you, that's the kind of reaction we need, um, and not on ideological grounds, but on, on places where, like, we're doing the right thing. Uh, and, um, you know, you've got to hold people accountable or nothing's going to change. But 
even on issues of, and, and I understand the concept of doing the right thing and doing the right thing in the country and country first, rise above, I think is the, uh, is one of those terms we, we talked about during the debt crisis, or the fiscal crisis, the fiscal cliff, yeah. uh, and that that appeal to the center. But what, what I'm, I guess, getting at is that there's the center is missing on both sides of uh, of of the argument, and it's kind of uh, both parties have this issue. Uh, but we kind of look at it as only Republican Democrat, and if everybody could just kind of be bipartisan. But it's not really; it's really that there are Democrats who are uh, there are Democrats who, for maybe they're pro labor, are not necessarily so pro immigration reform, and there are Republicans who are pro immigration reform. It's it's kind of, but a lot of it is kind of muddled between the partisanship about everything, and and the labels and the. The interest groups that they're never some interest groups are never willing to cross the aisle. But, oh, absolutely! I, okay. don't, don't don't misunderstand me. This is a problem that's endemic in both parties. Um, but I will say this: I mean, you look at the record over the last uh, five years since Obama's been president. Um, the Republicans, you know, and I am a I am a total independent-minded person. I think both parties have their issues. I'm an equal opportunity critic, but there's just no question the Republicans have been much more intransigent and extremist. Um, because of their 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 uh, fear, for many respects, and you saw it with the the gun bill, uh, uh, fear of their base um, that they're going to get primaried and they'll lose their seat, um, and that is that is 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 such a shame. And again, you know, if you're looking at the Republican side, um, there's going to be a need for a, a class of leaders to rise up, somewhat like Marco Rubio is doing on immigration, and sort of say, look, we have to. Um, evolve in our positions. We have to be able to show some flexibility and compromise, um, or we're going to become irrelevant. And I mean that not just the party, but the country, that we're not going to be able to compete on the world stage in the world economy the way we have taken for granted if we keep going down this road where every big problem comes up and we, you know, go at each other like the Democrats and Republicans are enemies, not competitors, uh, and, um, and, and don't get anything done. Well, we don't need to look much further than your old boss, Senator Lieberman, who suffered. You know, he he went followed his convictions with regard to the Iraq War, and then he suffered a primary defeat in Connecticut back in 2006. Of course, he was able to win as an independent, but he he kind of got drummed out of the party to a certain degree. Not kind of, he did. Okay. Yeah. Right. And 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 like so I that said, should be I, cautionary to everybody out left, there. Like it is on the right. It's just right now at this moment, it's much more extreme. The fever is much more extreme on the right, unfortunately. So if you were advising a moderate type of politician out there, I'm not saying that you're not currently, but let's keep it as a hypothetical. If you were advising a moderate type politician, how do you tow the middle of the road? I mean, you know, they say the middle of the road is, you know, has a lot of traffic and you might get hit by a car. Yeah, um, because I think I don't I don't think people want moderation. I think what they want is leadership. And they want character and a willing and but and, and part of that is compromising when it's for the good of the country, and I think that's a problem that the ideologues and the partisans on both sides is like they they say think um, moderate is splitting the difference always between the two parties, and I don't think that's the case at all. And what I would advise someone who wants to try and break the stranglehold of partisanship and special interests in Washington is to not make it about ideology, to sort of say the system is broken. We have to change the system. We have to change the incentives. Um, and part of that means being willing to stand up of special interests on both sides. 
um, and, um, you know, uh, really focus on the common good of the country. Um, you know, for the, for, for the Democrats, you know, the issue that's closest to me is education reform. You know, we need courageous Democrats to stand up and sort of say, listen, we love teachers. We, we should be paying teachers more, um, treating them like the professionals they are, but we have to change our work rules. We have to change our public education system, um, or we're going to continue to, to, to um, you know, fail our kids going forward. Um, and, you know, with the Republicans, um, you could say it's a, it's a range, of, range of issues on immigration, on gun legislation, um, on taxes. Uh, and thank God you saw some common sense seep into the Republican position uh, on taxes uh, when they reached the compromise last year, um, or, or I should say early this year. Uh, but, you know, that's the, uh, sadly the exception, not the norm. Talk about education reform for a second, because that's a very important issue for the Jewish for the Orthodox Jewish community out there. But it's not in the sense that you mentioned it. But uh, why is it so difficult to gain meaningful assistance? In some states, it's apparently not. There was actually just a very successful case in Indiana with regard to uh, with regard to vouchers mm-hmm. and assistance. But why is it so difficult? difficult to break through on on meaningful education reform that really allows the money to follow the student you're really changing the paradigm of how education is funded in in you know in the in the United States but even the state by state level and you have so many people out there who who really need it whether they be currently in private school whether they be looking for catholic education whether they be inner city kids who are who who are you know, just want to get out of failing schools. Uh, you know, there's so much inequality and issues with the with the current education paradigm as as it is, uh, you know, governmentally. Yeah, out there. Um, I I think there's two separate issues here. So there's there's vouchers as a means towards you know a short term solution to get kids out of failing schools, which Senator Lieberman supported, which I've supported. Um, but I don't think. A, that is a solution to our larger education problems, right? It's, an, it's, it's, a, it's a tool that we should be uh, exploring where we can, um, but I don't think politically it's realistic to expect that to get wide purchase in large part because um, regardless of its merits uh, and, uh, you know, whatever evidence we have that it can help, um, it's, it amounts to a, a, an abandonment in the eyes of many of the public schools. And they have such a strong emotional connection to the public schools that, that it, you know, it would certain degree say, you know, be a tacit admission of failure um, on the dream, you know, the, the ideal of public education. And I think for that reason, it's probably not going to be any kind of large scale solution. But the bigger issue, which is, you know, and I think the idea of money following the child is really relevant to public charter schools, which I've done a lot of work for. Um, and there, I think there is a very strong case to be made, and we can get to that point. But again, it's going to take some courageous people to stand up and sort of say, listen, um, you know, uh, the unions, the defenders of the status quo are not entitled to that money. That money is there to help children get a quality education, which they're not getting right now. And we should be exploring every new idea, every good idea, every workable idea that will help improve public education, particularly for disadvantaged kids who need it the most. Uh, and that's not the posture we have right now, particularly in New York. So when you say, why is it so hard? I think a large part is you have so many people who are scared um, to cross the teachers' unions and the other vested interests that want to keep things the way they are. And, um, again, I think there's plenty of evidence to show that you can 
stand up to those interests and win, um, but it's going to take more people to do that to kind of reach a tipping point. There's a big controversy going on. We've spoken about it here, but we've it's also been getting some play, New York Magazine, as well as uh, the Brian Lehrer Show, I think three episodes, uh, that's on WNYC, uh, with regard to the East Ramapo School District, which is up in Rockland County. You may, may be familiar, but uh, East Ramapo has 21,000 uh, mostly yeshiva kids, private school students, and they have about 9,000 public school students, and they have a majority Orthodox slash uh, Orthodox Hasidic uh, school board. And that uh, school board is accused, I guess, by the, by, the, by the liberal media, and particularly by a lot of people out there, of looting the school district. Uh, in my view, I, I think the, the paradigm just doesn't work. You can't have a situation where, where you, you're relying on people for funding, for very significant funding, I think to the tune of like $26,000 per student, for funding of, of public schools. They don't have any vested interest in it. And they don't have any incentive. And I'm not saying you shouldn't have an incentive of the greater good. But in the end, you know, crushing suburban taxes are, are going to win out over every time over, uh, over you know, a sense of, uh, of civic responsibility. Uh, I, I think you've hit on an extremely important point that's very relevant to New York City, David. And it's one of the reasons why our schools, despite Mayor Bloomberg's uh, best efforts, and, and I'm a fan of the work he's tried to do um, to change our public schools for the better. But because so many middle, middle class and upper middle class, largely white families, have abandoned the public schools and just refused to even consider them as an option, they don't have a vested interest in standing up and expressing their outrage at how bad some of these schools are. Um, and, and therefore, the, the politically connected, active, influential voices are totally silent and, and not engaged in the debate. And that is a recipe for continuing um, to have that vacuum filled by the special interests that control the system now and want it to stay the same. Uh, I, I've been waiting for a politician like Chuck Schumer, who is very in touch with the middle class and can channel uh, what's that guy he has from Long Island that he always talks about as his. The guy who wrote the book about, yeah. yeah. I, I can't remember the name. Yeah. We'll, call, we'll, it, call, we'll it, call him like Mike the Plumber or something. If, like if that. there's, there, there, you know, the, this city is just begging for a political leader to stand up, and I'd actually love to work for a candidate who would do this, who stand up and go to Brownstone, Brooklyn, Upper West Side. Um, Forest Hills, you know, the, the, the real heart of the middle class of New York, Staten Island, and go to those people and say, it's outrageous that you have to pay double taxes. You have to pay once for public schools that you don't use and then pay another uh, fee to send your kids to private school. You're paying taxes for schools you deserve to get a quality education for those tax dollars. And engage those pe- people in a revolt to demand changes in the public schools. You'd see a revolution. You would see you know, politicians, you know, fold like a house of cars. You, you know, because they would see that those people vote, and there are much greater numbers than the teachers' union. Well, Dan, uh, this is Spin Class. We're here uh, talking politics with Michael Fragan, and we are on the Nachum Siegel Network. We're talking to Dan Gerstein from the CEO of Gotham Ghostwriters. And one last question for you: I. The idea of communications director out there, give, it, give us an idea what the communications director does. And is it a more political job? Is it a governmental job? How do you shape an image? You know, how do you craft that image? And it, we'll, we'll probably have to, It's probably a larger question we'll have to get into a, a future interview. But uh, just want to give the, pub, the audience a little flavor for what it is that you do. I'd be love to come back and talk about that in more depth. The, the, the quick answer is it really depends on the context. If you have um, a... Uh, 
uh, you're working for an elected leader who's very political and is interested in uh, positioning themselves to run for higher office, you have, um, you know, one strategic objective. But if you work for a guy who is very policy-focused, um, is not worried about the next election, um, then your, 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 your focus and your um, strategy is very different. Um, and that sort of will then shape what your actual job is. And in my case with Senator Lieberman, um, for the first few years I worked for him, you know, he was very happy being a senator. And so, so much of our communications were targeted at promoting his ideas, right? Because his feeling was um, by getting the ideas out there, his influence would grow, and therefore he'd be more effective in actually building support for those ideas and passing legislation. That began to evolve a little bit. It didn't change totally, but his focus began to expand after he ran for vice president because he was thinking about running for president. And in that case, we sort of then, it wasn't, again, mutually exclusive. It was we had to keep an eye on promoting him as a political leader um, and a viable candidate as well as the ideas he was engaged in. Excellent. Dan Gerstein, CEO of Gotham Ghostwriters, former communications director for Senator Joe Lieberman. Thank you for joining us here on Spin Class, and we hope to have you again very, very soon. I'd love to. Thanks, Michael. Take care. Okay, you too, Dan. Bye-bye. Uh, I want to welcome former Mayor Steve Langert, uh, or committeeman Steve Langert from Lakewood, New Jersey. And uh, Steve, uh, welcome to Spin Class. Michael, welcome. Thank you for having me this evening. So I don't know, is former mayor more appropriate or committeeman? How, how do I... How do I this, s- year, this year I serve as the deputy mayor. Uh, deputy mayor. Okay, I apologize. Okay. Well, you know, there's a, there's a saying, once the mayor, always the mayor. Exactly. So I was just, you know, I don't want to be out of turn. You know, protocol is very, very important. But uh, 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 Steve... We'll just go with Deputy Mayor Steve Langard. Uh, that's that's a lo- the longer the title, usually it's kind of the inverse to uh, you know to the you know position. But uh, tell us a little bit about Lakewood, New Jersey, for those in the audience who don't know. They probably heard of Lakewood, but tell us about the political entity of the Lakewood Township. I, I understand they only have about twenty minutes. <laughs> about twenty hours. Oh well, so. tell us then. Then we'll move to the next question. <laughs> uh, well, you know, Lakewood is is governed by a a committee form of government. Uh, there are different uh, there are different um, forms of government in the state of New Jersey. We are governed by five people. A person is elected to the committee, and the committee actually chooses the mayor and the deputy mayor on a yearly basis. Uh, the committee terms are three years, so a person would run for election or re-election every three years, and it's on a rotating basis. So while there are five of us who serve on the committee, it would be a two, two, and one. So every year you have an election. Uh, every year two, there are either two seats or in the off year there is one seat up for, for election. Okay. How many of the five are Orthodox? Four. Four. Okay. And the, is that by design or is it, is it, are they at large elections or is just the... They are at large elections. Um, you know, uh, at, they're at large elections and I would say that the first Orthodox person was elected to, not the first Jewish, but the first. What you know, when when people in the people in um, in the Jewish world think about um, think about Orthodox or think about Lakewood, what they would identify with. I guess the first person who was elected was a person by the name of P.G. Waxman. He was elected in 1991, I believe, in 2000. And, and I'm sorry, he was elected in 1999. In 2000 and I want to say 2001, uh, second the second Orthodox person uh, was elected, appointed, and then elected. His name was Mayor Lichtenstein. He currently serves 
on the township committee. He's affiliated with the, uh, he's a Democrat. We have uh, Menasha Miller, who came on that year as well. He's a, a lot of people know him. He's a chaplain in the Air Force. Uh, he was elected that year also. He's a Republican. Uh, we have uh, Ray Coles, who's the longest serving member on the committee. He is not Jewish. Uh, we have Albert Ackerman, or Isaac Ackerman, who serves as our mayor this year. He is also up for re-election this year. He's the only one up for re-election. In, in the cycle, he's the person who runs individually. And then there's myself. I'm currently in my second term. I was first elected in 2008, and I took office in January 2009. So just from my own experience, I'm a trustee in the village of Lawrence in Nassau County, and we only have about 6,500 uh, residents, and we have the entire board is orthodox, and it's been orthodox for some time. Uh, but it's probably the, the reputation, uh, political reputation of the community in Lakewood is that it's entirely monolithic. Everybody votes this kind of the same way. It's a huge block vote and probably one of the most influential block votes in the entire state of New Jersey. So give us a perspective on you know, how and the voter participation in the Orthodox community is extremely high. But so, so if there's anything I said there that was that you want to correct uh, it's we'll put that in the form of a question. In any community, you have people that are going to be anti-establishment. So, do you have people who are, you know, who will, you know, vote against, as you term it, the block? Of course, uh, is there a voting block in Lakewood? There absolutely is. Does it, you know, is it something that people should uh, be jealous of, or should they? Um, for the right word here, you know, I tell people, what is the difference between a Jewish voting bloc and the, you know, International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers? <laughs> and the president of the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers meets with the president of the United States or a senator and says, you know, I can deliver X amount of votes, you know, and they're able to effectuate things for their union or for their members that normally they wouldn't be able to get, you know, is that wrong? Is it wrong for, for political lake, leaders in Lakewood to be able to say, Lakewood needs certain things? And, you know, for politicians to say, you know, if I want to be able to count on the votes that are going to come out of Lakewood, you know, I have to be sensitive to the issues and needs of the community in Lakewood. Is that wrong? I don't think it's wrong. I think that, you know, when you have people who are looking for the best interest of the community, or serving the best interest of the community and want the community to be able to healthy and grow, that it's okay. Well, I, I don't see anything wrong with that. I certainly didn't mean anything that I said to be uh, a, a negative characterization. In fact, okay. I think I think it's entirely positive. Uh, I have no issue with the with the idea that if people of common interests vote together and they vote uh, in in they vote. Um, monolithically is not an appropriate word. If they vote uh, strongly, uh, then they deserve a lot of credit for doing so, and having high voter participation is definitely a credit. Uh, I think that if you had the voter participation in Brooklyn that you have in Lakewood, or you had the voter participation in Brooklyn that you had in Curacy Oil or in, or in Muncie or in New Square, they would probably get be a lot more effective. And we don't, you know, that's that's not the case. In, and we've had people on the show talk about how voter participation in Brooklyn it hovers in the in the Orthodox community. I'm saying uh, in the 20 to 30 percent range. And if you had if you had a 50 to 55, 60, 65, some some districts 70 to 80 percent voter turnout, 
and you had everybody voting, you know, in the best interest of only what the Jewish community wanted. Yes, I think you. I think you're absolutely correct. I think you'd see a lot, um, a lot different representation or a lot, you know, different things going on in Brooklyn than you do in the other communities that you mentioned. So, you, you led me to an interesting thing that I wanted to discuss is the best interests of the Jewish community. Obviously, you're elected and you and your colleagues are elected not just to serve the Jewish community or not just the Orthodox community, but you have a sense where you have a a population which is a distinct minority in other locales, meaning the Orthodox Jewish community, but in Lakewood, they are a very impressive majority. And so do the other communities feel marginalized? In Lakewood, you have two large communities. There's the Orthodox community, and there is the senior citizen or adult community. Act, um, community, Very large adult community in Lakewood. In fact, Ocean County, New Jersey, outside of Florida and Arizona, Ocean County, New Jersey, has one of the largest adult communities in the country. And when I was elected, I had enjoyed, and especially when I was re-elected, I, I personally enjoyed broad support across the board. And people here know that when I when I sit up on the dais or when I'm deciding, I'm looking out for the best interests of what Lakewood is all about. Lakewood includes not only the adult community and not only the Jewish community, but there are other communities here as well. There's a, a large Latino community. We have people from Eastern Europe here, not as large, but we are we are truly a microcosm of, or truly a microcosm of a melting pot here in Lakewood, and I'm proud to say that. And I will tell you that in my initial inauguration, my speech was all about representing all of Lakewood, because I told people at the end of my term, whether it was three years, six years, one year, two years, ten years, however long that term may be. I want people to be able to point their finger at me and say, Stephen Langert was a credit to the Orthodox people. He served everybody fairly, and he served everybody justly. And I think that that, that as an Orthodox Jew, I think that, and I'm, and I'm pretty, you know, I'm, I think that, that it's important for us to remember. People who wear a yarmulke have to remember that we think we live in you know, the New York metropolitan area, and there are um, the largest concentration of Orthodox Jews outside of Israel in, in our area, you know, we kind of get caught up and we can get lost in the fact that we're still in the minority. We're not in the majority. And when people see a yarmulke on your head, they look at you a certain way and they automatically judge you and they automatically hold you to a higher standard. And I've told that to people and I've <clears throat> told people outside of the Orthodox community in Lakewood that I recognize that. I recognize that there are, they are judging us differently. They are holding us to a higher standard. And it's up to us to recognize that, to be cognizant of that fact, and to make sure that we are governing in a way that is true and just for everybody who lives in our town. That's the credo that I follow in the morning, and I'm, I'm proud to say that I've had those from outside the Orthodox community, from outside the Jewish community, say to me, Steve, you are living up to your campaign promises. You are living up to that motto that you treat everybody the same, you look at the issues, and you, at the end of the day, you do what you feel is the best for Lakewood. Now, Lakewood includes all those communities, so you need to be, you know, you need to be able to balance the needs of each community and govern accordingly. 
what about unity within the Orthodox community itself? I imagine, you know, as they say, if there are, you know, to, Two Jews on an island, you have three shuls, or and ten, that, ten Jews, are, eleven, eleven uh, opinions. Uh, how do you maintain a political unity even amongst the Jewish community? I know you said they're anti-establishment people, but how do you maintain this idea with so many, with so many from Jews out there? How, how do you ensure that there's not all kinds of competition amongst different subgroups? Sometimes it's very hard to do, and I will tell you that, you know, unfortunately. That that's the issue not facing not only a politician, but I think that's the issue facing us as Jews. I think that if we were, you know, in, in times of crisis, if you look at, you know, in times of war, in Eretz Israel, in times of war, everybody bands together. There's no, I'm this way, you're that way. You know, I'm a leather yarmulke, you're a, you're a kippah shuga, and I'm a, you know, I'm a, I'm a black hat. Everyone bands together because they recognize and they realize that there's a danger from outside forces. Unfortunately, when things are quiet, relatively so, or not, you know, people don't don't feel that way. And I think that we all have to be cognizant of that. That we need to be unified. If, if we need to be able to to uh, disagree politely and respectfully, like you said, you have two Jews, you have three opinions. I mean, that's that's certainly the case, and there's, it's okay to disagree with somebody else. You know, not every, every person is different. Every person is a unique individual, and that's what makes us all, that's what makes us all great, and that, that's what makes it beautiful. We need to be able to be civil. We need to be able to understand that we're allowed to, to disagree and disagree respectfully, but we'll listen to each other, and perhaps when you listen to somebody, they'll say something that makes sense, and that you'll want to listen to and do what they want to do, do what they're asking you to do. Talk for a second about the Lakewood VOD. The VOD is the is this community organization made up of uh, you know different community, heads of community organizations, like I, I guess, and that te- advises the community on how to you know who, you know different candidates and you know the their, Lakewood, their importance. The, the Lakewood VOD was actually established by the Rosh Hashiva. It's a council of people who serve at his request to advise him on political decisions that they feel are best for the Lakewood community. That's what the Lakewood VOD was meant to do, uh, meant to be, and that's what they have been. They're, it's a group of people who serve at the request of the Rosh Hashiva of Lakewood in order to counsel him on matters that uh, he feels are important. So a lot of the... I guess to a certain degree, the political power resides with that with that group. If you yes, you can say that. Okay, that and would be fair to say. So to a certain degree, it's like a very significant political club or political organization. I, I'm not I'm not trying to uh, give it uh, to legitimize or delegitimize. It. I'm just trying to you know allow somebody to understand what it is. And, and so to get to it, the the VOD in Back in the last gubernatorial election, I believe in, endorsed John Corzine. They endorsed John Corzine, uh, but Chris Christie won most of the vote. Well, Chris Christie won Lake uh, won Lakewood by about a two to one margin. Okay, so can you give me some perspective on on that? Well, the VOD at the time, the VOD's decision was that uh, Governor Corzine had been good to Lakewood, had been a friend of Lakewood. And their main emphasis on, is on Hakarasatov. Their main emphasis is on, uh, you know, repaying 
kindness measure for measure, and they felt that they owed it to him to to um, support him. There were many, many people here in the community that felt that, given his personal views on uh, same-sex marriage, given his personal views on other moral issues where they felt that Governor Christie, they're more aligned with Governor Christie, and they felt that it wasn't, um, it wasn't uh, the right choice. And that goes back to, you know, where people say you voting is a monolithic block. You know, it, that just goes to prove that the people of Lakewood are not just sheep being led to the slaughter, so to speak, in a, you know, in a... <laughs> well, that's a little bit exaggerated, but right. that's fine. No, but that's the way people talk about it. Oh, you know, it's just mindless people just going and doing as they're told. Right. Which obviously was not the case. It obviously was not the case. People said, hey, you know what? We don't agree. We don't agree with the decision that was made. We feel very strongly about it, and we're going to show our displeasure, and we're going to vote for the candidate who we think represents us, uh, represents orthi- or, or, you know, an Orthodox Jew morally and socially, in a better light, and therefore they voted for Governor Christie over um, former Governor Corzine, which leads me to which leads to my conclusion. Then, and what I wanted to tell you, well, the point I wanted to bring across was, is that yes, for the most part, we vote as a block, but because we believe that the decisions that are being made, or the, or the rec- let me let me let me rephrase that, the recommendations that are made are good and just. When people believe they're not good and just, as you mentioned in the Christie Corzine election, they say, no, we're not going to follow the recommendation. We're going to vote our conscience. Excellent. We're here with Deputy Mayor Steve Langert of Lakewood, New Jersey. This is Spin Class, sponsored by Seasons on the Nahum Siegel Network. And Steve, is there an Indian of uh, Kapara? Therefore, in the early endorsement of uh, Governor Christie this uh, this year, some say there is. Some, <laughs> okay, so, absolutely. Um, some say not you know, to be too religious about it. What? Not to be too religious about no, it. No, uh, some say some say that there definitely is a you know an Indian of Kapara, and some people do say that you know they want to show that you know Chatasi Avisi Poshati, and you know forgive us, please. You know. We, it seems to have worked. I think uh, Governor Christie has probably been pretty good uh, on Lakewood. Uh, let me get to a final question because we have to uh, we have to bring this segment to an end. Although I'd like to continue it at a future date. That would be my uh, pleasure. Talk to me about public education in Lakewood because we've discussed uh, public education in the East Ramapo School District. We're about to discuss public education in the Lawrence School District. These are all school districts where private school students outnumber public school students by uh, a significant number, and I imagine Lakewood is one of those. Well, Lakewood, a lake, the Lakewood School District uh, has 5,600, maybe 6,000 public school students in it, and the private school system has 22 to 23,000 students. Uh, the relationship is, uh, you know, is, is, is incredible. Uh, the inverse relationship is, is just astronomical. And you know, as discussed by your by your previous uh, guest, you know, it causes significant challenges to the taxpayer of Lakewood, especially since when you talk about state aid and you know a lot of a lot of um, school district costs are some of them are borne by by the state. It causes <coughs> tremendous hardship for the people in Lakewood because there really is no way for the state to figure out how to 
how to take care of Lakewood. You know, every school district, you know, okay, we've got X amount of public school students, maybe we've got 10% private school students, and this is the formula that we're going to use. And they apply it across the state. Well, Lakewood is is the only one that's not that way, and it's unique. And we've um, <coughs> been asking, and we've been asking, and, you know, it's been dealt with, or I should say it hasn't been dealt with, but it's going to come to a head eventually, and something's going to be uh, something is going to definitely need, uh, be needed in order to in order to um, look at that situation. Okay, Deputy Mayor Steve Langer of Lakewood, New Jersey. Thank you for joining us, and uh, we promise to have you back. Thank you so much for having me, and I look forward to being with you again. Great. This is Spin Class, sponsored by Seasons on the Nachum Siegel Network. And uh, as I said, we're going to segue into another discussion of another school district. Last week we had uh, on the air Dove Herman, who is running for school board in my neck of the woods, School District 15, Lawrence uh, School District. I apologize if you're out there in someplace else and it's a little too parochial. But, of course, we're going to discuss the politics of it. We have two candidates running for school board, Tova Plout and Michael Hatton. Uh, Michael Hatton being a former school board member who is now running for school board yet again. And Tova Plout being a longtime activist and a newcomer looking to get her first term on the on the board. Michael and Tova, welcome. Hi, good evening. Hi, thank you for having us. So uh, we'll start with Tova. Tova, uh, you want to take the plunge uh, into political office here and uh, tell us what your recipe for success is in uh, getting to the school board. Well, I've um, in, uh, well, I think there's a lot of things that are going on in our district. Most importantly, we want to and continue to keep our taxes low here in District 15. We are very lucky that our current board has managed to keep the taxes much lower than all the neighboring districts. And I would also like for us to be able to provide a quality education for all the students in the district, no matter whether they're in private or public schools, so that we can maintain services and things that we've already gotten thus far. These are very important matters here in our district, and uh, I think I can help with that. Okay. What makes you more qualified than uh, than the people you're running against. You're actually running against two people. I apologize. You're running uh, You're running as, against uh, Michael, can I ask you to just mute your phone for a second? There's a lot of background noise. It's hard to hear. Uh, the You're running against two people. Uh, you're running against the Dove Herman who we had on last week, as well as a, uh, a gentleman named Jesse Lunenpack. Okay, so... That's correct. Okay, so it's a three-way race, which I think is might be unusual for this, uh, for this district, for this seat. And... Uh, Give us a give us an idea of what uh, uh, you know of your background specifically as relating to the other candidates. Well, um, I feel that I'm much more qualified than the other candidates running. Um, uh, one of the most important things about me to know is that I'm a professional educator. I have a degree in community and human services with concentration in early childhood studies. I currently run a school. I have administrator's credentials. I also have child development credentials. And um, I think that my expertise in running a school and educating students, as I've been doing for uh, 20 years, is, will be a big benefit to our, our board. Currently, we don't have any educators on the board, and my opponents are not educators. They Probably don't no women either, right? There's, no, there's no, no, no women on the board. There are no women on the board, and I am the only woman running. And, and, and uh, it, I think a woman brings a unique perspective to the board. And as an educator and a woman... I think the combination is uh, something the board could really, really use and our community can use. My educational background really 
is uh, far, far more advanced than anybody else running against me, and um, and my and my expertise in this field will be a huge benefit to the community. So, Michael Hatton, you uh, you were on the board for a couple of years. You've been off. You want to come back? Uh, you you missed the action. <laughs> uh, well. I, I could say yes, and I will say yes. Uh, and I decided to return to the board at this time because uh, I believe our community really needs an experienced uh, educational leader uh, as we really deliberate over some very significant challenges our district faces. Look, we have teacher contracts. We have the number six school. We have student outcomes. We have allocation of dwindling resources, fiscal discipline. These are serious issues that will impact the lives of all of us. And uh, this is why I'm running. Excellent. Give me an idea of the of ha- of managing a school district, and we, there's a little bit of a theme tonight. Managing a school district that has more public, more private school students than public school students. How do you, how do you balance those needs? Well, let's let's first of all, we, we're we're trustees for the entire district, for the uh, for, for for all of the community. So let's make sure that 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 becomes a central theme for all of us, and then that has to be in reality. Um, as an educator, I've been in the uh, field of education for now 43 years. This is my 43rd year. Uh, and I've accomplished uh, quite a bit over the course of time. And uh, if you'd like, I could take a few moments and give you my background on, uh, on, on uh, what I've accomplished in the field of education and see how that background applied to the challenges we face today can be very beneficial. Well, let's, uh, let's just talk for a second about how difficult it is that this district had specific issues with regard to or pretty acrimonious issues as as are we hear about we've heard about up in rockland county between public and private and that seems to have uh simmered down a little bit uh, well, well it certainly has um in my first uh, uh time on the board that was 2006 to 2009 um and those were really some unbelievable years um and they were very tumultuous and 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 they're probably the most tumultuous in our in our district's history in, in, during the time I, I served on the board, taxes never rose. Special needs children received the services they deserve. Transportation became a non-issue. Ball fields and other school facilities were now accessible to the entire community. And here is the most important thing. The hateful rhetoric, the hateful rhetoric uh, died down. The hateful rhetoric went away. The hateful rhetoric no, no longer existed in the district. And that and that was and that was an incredible accomplishment uh, that I that I uh, was uh, was a part of. Well, that that's uh, certainly something that to be very very proud of, and uh, there's no question that there is uh, that there's definitely less of that out there. And uh, fortunately, I think that you know the Lawrence School District is not going the way of of what's going on East Ramapo, and that's probably due to some very uh, some very good decision making on the part of the board. Uh, Tova, give me an idea about you know, who is uh, you know who on the board is supporting you and uh, of the of the current board members and you know what your relationship with them is uh, you know, of the current board members. I've been very lucky to have a really wonderful relationship with all the members of the current board. Um, I supported them all in their their prior elections, and I worked very diligently on all their campaigns. I've been actually working on behalf of our community in this regard for over a decade. And I think one of the most wonderful things about me as a candidate is that I do have the respect and the relationship with the board members for us to work together and to accomplish all those wonderful things that 
Michael Hatton just, just described. These are things that our community really needs. And we need to make sure that we not only maintain the services that we have provided for our children, but improve them in any way possible that we can. But of course, we have to make sure that we do that in a very fiscally responsible manner. We need to keep our taxes low. And we have done a very good job thus far. And the challenges that we're facing in the upcoming years with the teacher salaries and the benefits and those things are going to be a challenge for us to maintain a low budget and still provide quality services. And uh, the best way we can do that is by having educators like myself and Michael on the board because we've done it. We're both running schools that are fiscally responsible, that come inside, come in budget, and these are very important matters that our school, that our school district is going to be facing in the next but this is Spin Class, sponsored by Seasons on the Nachum Siegel Network, NachumSiegel.com. And we are talking to Tova Plout and Michael Hatton, who are both running for the Lawrence School Board. That election coming up on May 21st. So that is a very, very short time away, May 21st. Uh, Michael uh, Hatton, do you sense the same amount of engagement out there? As uh, and now, you said that you know things have kind of died down a little bit. As far as is there the same amount of community engagement with regard to what's going on in the school board these days as there as there was uh, back when you first ran? Well, in the last few years, there really hasn't been. It's pretty pretty much been status quo in terms of elections, low turnouts, uh, same candidates are getting elected. And by the way, we have an unbelievable board, and I'm quite honored to be uh, uh, to be uh, on the ticket with uh, Tova Plout. She is an absolutely terrific candidate, and will make a great uh, per, uh, 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 trustee of our district. Um, yeah, I, I'm a little concerned that there's been a little apathy that's uh, that's creeped into the community, and uh, I think that uh, that that has to that has to really change. Uh, we have to look at the issues. There are some serious things we face, as I mentioned before, and and uh, really we have to get everybody who 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 can vote come out on uh, on Tuesday, the 21st, and cast their ballot, uh, regardless of who they choose as candidates. That that's up to them. You know, I'm hoping eventually they will choose us, and and we will we will be able to represent the community the way Tova so eloquently described. And and I and and I, but I do believe that our community needs to get a little jolt, needs to get back engaged in the uh, conversation, and uh, I'm going to do everything we can to, to make that happen. Well, speaking of engagement, and yeah, I'll throw this out to either of you, but I guess, uh, Michael, we, as a follow-up, uh, speaking of engagement, there was this uh, pretty divisive uh, referendum a couple weeks ago. We talked about it. Uh, on we, had, we did a little segment on it on the show, and you know that led some, particularly uh, Mr. Herman, who came on last week, who said specifically, and I think you know, quite eloquently that the board kind of ignored the needs of, of the residents. Uh, and, you know, is, is it the fact that he's not looking at the big picture or, in fact, that sometimes people in power, you know, sometimes uh, lose touch? Well, well, there, there, there may be a lot of facts that we need to that we need to straighten out first. Sure. Uh, the board has certain flexibilities and certain abilities to put in judgments and and and, and make comments on on issues. Uh, but they also have fiduciary responsibility to choose the the highest bid. Uh, we have a process here that allows for a referendum to occur where the voters of the district decide what they want, not the school board. Now, did the school board make some mistakes in the contract that they uh, that they put forward? I believe they did. 
Uh, I was not part of that, but I believe they did. But that does not impugn the quality of the people on the school board and all they've been able to contribute over the years. And I don't want it to be the defining issue in this, in this election. It cannot be. We have to have a thoughtful process when it comes to deciding what we're going to do with the number six school property. A thoughtful process. And then we will ultimately let the taxpayers of the district decide on what they want. So yes, there was, there was some mistakes made, but ultimately the, 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 uh, the, the residents of our community chose, and that is exactly the way the process is supposed to work. Okay, we have time for a very, very quick thirty-second uh, uh, closing remark. Uh, uh, Tova, you wanna you wanna grab that? Well, I just first of all want to thank you for having me. I think that um, these issues that Michael and I have discussed this evening are very crucial for our neighborhood, and it is really time for our neighborhood to unify itself again and to come together. And to heal, it is time for us to provide a wonderful education for all the children in our district and to um, continue the, the gains that we have made in the last decade um, for the private school community as well. So these are very important issues, and I hope that everybody comes out to vote for me, Tova Plowd, and Mike Hatton on May 21st. Thanks so much. Yeah. Michael, very yeah. quickly. Thank you so much for the opportunity to express our views. Look, we live in a, in a great and wonderfully diverse district. Our unique community dynamic presents multiple challenges, but you know what? It also presents multiple opportunities. If you believe I'm the best candidate, we will make, I will make thoughtful decisions. Tover and I will make thoughtful decisions, and, uh, and I would be honored to represent uh, the entire community on our school board. Okay, excellent. I should also point out there you have a, a third uh, gentleman running with you, correct? Uh, he's no longer on the ballot. That's Juan Zapata. He has uh, formally sent in his uh, letter of resignation. He is no longer uh, a candidate, but because of the fact that he did put in a, his ballot originally, he remains on the on the uh, on the ballot. Okay, and I was actually referring to to, uh, to a running mate. By David okay, I was yes, I was going to say that's information that I have right here that uh, yes. David Sussman has been on the board for a very long time is also running. But apparently he's unopposed. Unopposed, and he is an outstanding uh, community uh, 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 service person. Well, outstanding. Both of you, thank you very, very much for joining us. It's good to get a perspective out there. You know, all politics is local, folks. It's all <laughs> about uh, this is the most local form of government that you can get, you know, the village, the school district, the fire district, and the like. And uh, I want to thank you both for joining us and giving us that perspective. This is Spin Class, and we are sponsored by Seasons on the Malcolm Siegel Network. And thank you for joining us. We will be back, not next week, but in two weeks for another edition. Stay tuned for ZK on the Thursday Night Extravaganza.